KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 103.9 FM, this is Flashpoint, shining light on the issues that matter to you in Philadelphia. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. I'm KYW's Antoinette Lee, and this week on Flashpoint, we're discussing the way crime is covered by local news and the impact it has. These are the type of things that I think needs to be on the forefront. Three-year-olds and five-year-olds and 13-year-olds do not need to die, but they also need to know that three-year-olds, five-year-olds are graduating. Our Newsmaker of the Week is a local award-winning journalist who's gained national recognition for their work in race and media. There is a disproportionate number of black and brown journalists in the newsroom. Our changemaker has traveled the world as a photographer. Now he's bringing his talents home to Germantown Avenue. I wanted when people walked into the gallery to feel something. Peace, euphoria, zen. It's a half hour you need to hear straight ahead on Flashpoint. KYW's Antoinette Lee here, and welcome back to Flashpoint. So I want to start off this week a little different. Now, because I think this story is important to the panel discussion, which is about the trust and the relationships between the community and local news. This weekend, I was scrolling through Instagram, and I came across a post by Tariq Glasgow, a community leader and panelist you'll hear from later. He had a picture of the logos for some of the local news outlets with a caption that stated in part that the news is contributing to the trauma and violence in our city. Now, this wasn't the first strong criticism I'd seen that day, and it came as almost all of the local news outlets here in Philly were reporting the 400th homicide of the year. So I decided that now would be the good time for this conversation. So I said all of that to say in part that reporters are people too. We use social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're easy to find on there. You can reach out to us. We see you. We hear you. Now let's dig in. So here to have an open and honest discussion with us on Flashpoint, we have Tariq Glasgow. He is a community leader in Grace Ferry and founder of the Young Chances Foundation. Alex Silverman is the brand manager and program director here at KYW News Radio. And Jessica Beard is a trauma surgeon at Temple University. She's also the director of research for the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting. Thank you so much for joining us on Flashpoint. Thank you. Now, Tariq, your Instagram post is part of the reason we're having this discussion today. Now, in the post, you stated in part that, quote, major news outlets are contributing to the trauma and play a direct role in the violence across America, especially in Philly. Can you tell us what you meant by that? First of all, I just want to thank Antoinette for being in the forefront of making our voices heard. For me, it's the continuously seeing the images that play out in our community. As far as the outlets, Every time you turn on the news, it's like a goal to get to the 500. There's an image of black kids or black and brown kids being killed throughout the city. And now it is women that, that are being highlighted. And it seems like the stories are becoming heavier in a rotation. And they're not even trying to acknowledge the graduations, um, acknowledge that the block captains that are keeping these blocks on. There are so many essential volunteers that we see out here in our community that are doing the work, but it's not highlighted. And sometimes they get highlighted at their death. Um, one of the things that I respect in our community is we try to give our, our leaders and our children their flowers down because the only time that they get flowers we see now is if they're on somebody's t-shirt or, or on the news because of death. 
Jessica, what are your major concerns when it comes to local news coverage and gun violence? I totally agree with uh, Tyreek. I, I first got interested in this topic in trying to really understand why gun violence happens in Philadelphia. Every day I take care of people who've been shot as a trauma surgeon, which means that I you know, do operations. I have to tell family members that their loved ones have passed away. And when I first moved to Philadelphia, I was really shocked by how normalized it was even here, you know, at the hospital. And so I went to local media reports to try to get a sense of what was happening. And what I found were these episodic reports, these short reports, 20 second reports that basically follow a law enforcement or police narrative. That led me to actually do research on this topic. And right now we're talking to patients who've been shot about their own perceptions on reporting on gun violence. You know, they don't appreciate the episodic reports. They're not giving consent for those reports. They don't appreciate that there's a lot of negativity. And they also feel like a lot of the times when they're described, it's inaccurate. And it may be reinforcing biases about the people who are shot in Philadelphia. You know, we need to make things better. Um, We need to make reporting about gun violence better. So hopefully we're going to use some of the results of our research to kind of work on that. Alex, what's your reaction to hearing those concerns? Can you explain why and how we cover crime the way we do? Absolutely. And and I'm not here to act like I have all the answers on this topic because it is a very difficult subject. And, And we have an obligation as media to make sure people in the region understand what's going on. And, you know, especially people who don't live in neighborhoods affected by gun violence, we have an obligation to make sure that they hear about what's happening and hear about what those neighborhoods are like. So anytime we do cover these things, one thing I do emphasize is to not just rely on the police narrative to get there, to talk to people in the neighborhood and to not just, you know, try to find people who have information on that incident, but also to talk about what it is like to live there, to paint the picture of what things are like in that neighborhood so somebody can really start to relate to people who deal with this on a day-to-day basis. And it, it is really challenging because often when we hear about things that happen from day to day, you know, all we have is that initial sort of bare bones narrative. I just want to just like summarize, because a lot of people look at our organizations and a lot of organizations on the ground as, you know, being able to be at the table. But one of the things that I, I like to say is the menu has to change because a lot of times people look at black and brown in particular communities for that. And one of the, the things that I got in the email was the media had a saying that if it bleeds, it leads. And that's a stereotype that is still online. And it goes to the narrative that the city of Philadelphia has $6,500 to bury someone, but they don't have $6,500 set aside to let them live. And that just goes into the belief that they rather see the goal of the 500 deaths instead of the goal of 50,000 children graduating. These are the type of things that I think needs to be on the forefront. Three-year-olds and five-year-olds and 13-year-olds do not need to die, but they also need to know that three-year-olds, five-year-olds are graduating. I agree completely. Telling positive stories, and it's, it is a big focus of ours, and I know a lot of organizations yeah. try. It is so important, but it is difficult when we have a crisis going on, and we're trying to figure out how to cover that crisis and make sure that it gets the attention that it deserves without making it sound like this is just another thing that happened. I want to hear what you know. people like the two of you 
would suggest in terms of balancing that need between making sure people understand that they may not be seeing it where they live, but there's a crisis going on in this market. There's something needs to be done about and having these things come off as just, all right, we're reporting that a shooting happened in this neighborhood and it's gone tomorrow and we don't focus enough on the victim. Jessica, I know that you are working with reporters to improve reporting on gun violence. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of at the data collection phase. So we're actually downloading all local TV news reports on gun violence and looking at them and seeing what they actually contain. And we're sort of in the early stages of speaking with journalists. Media research shows that when you read reports that are episodic, that are focused on the episode, that you tend to blame the individual, that you don't see social structures, you don't see political structures at fault or the potential areas where things need to improve, right? And all of us know that there's a direct connection between historic racism, structural racism, and gun violence and the places where gun violence happens. And as a result, the people that gun violence largely happens to or the, the populations that are affected by gun violence in Philadelphia. So if you're constantly telling these episodic reports, number one, you're traumatizing the people who the reports are about. As you mentioned, Alex, you want to tell people about gun violence who aren't maybe being impacted by gun violence, but what about the people who are being impacted by gun violence who are consuming your news? And then there's the other side, which is that if you keep telling these episodic reports, you can reinforce stereotypes and biases by dehumanizing the victims of gun violence to people who maybe aren't experiencing gun violence. So I would say probably the better way, and again, no one has all the solutions, right? This is what we're trying to figure out. And this is what the research is about, is like, what does each stakeholder say might be the best or the most ethical, perhaps, reporting on gun violence? I would say that consent from the people that you're reporting about is very important. And what about actually going to people who've been injured in a, in a follow-up story and maybe telling the story about their recovery? What about going to people like Tyreek and talking about solutions, you know, and the things that he's working on? be really focused on those structural solutions and asking questions and looking at limitations. Alex, is there a reason why um, we do, as Jessica is calling uh, it, episodic reporting? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, first of all, I think everything Jessica said is, is totally valid. And there are a lot of really interesting ideas there and things to think about. I, I think it comes down to the fact that our audiences, whether it be a TV station or a radio station, what they expect from us and what our value proposition has always been is that they will come to us in any given moment and they will hear what is happening now, right? And we have to consider, and you're right, that we can't possibly report on every shooting. And so we have to think about what constitutes the news value of each shooting. Is it, you know, something that, and we get into sort of tough territory when it's like, oh, a shooting that happens in a neighborhood where shootings don't happen. Okay, well, th does that mean we're then ignoring the places where shootings happen every day? And how do we balance that? Is it, uh, you know, if a child is shot, should we report on that? And if we do, how do we contextualize it to make sure that people understand? And how do we build a story around it and make it something that somebody's going to care about? The approach that we take is that we want to tell stories about people. And the challenge is, as Jessica pointed out, we can't always do that with the respect to the victim that it deserves. 
And so sometimes the story isn't about the victim and sometimes the story isn't about the episode as much as it is this happened in the neighborhood. That's why it's in the newscast. But the story itself is really about the impact on that neighborhood. The story is about talking to people there and coming to understand what they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis so we can communicate that to a larger audience. The, the downstream issues that Jessica pointed out from that are absolutely something we should be thinking about. And um, like I said, I'm not sure there's a there's a really solid, clear answer on how best to do this, but I really would like to see more of, of, of your research. So, Anton, is it, is it okay if I just touch base with what Alex and Jess were saying? I'm in full agreement with Jess as far as the trauma that it brings and having follow-up stories. Alex, one of the things I would challenge not only you and your colleagues on is the cause and effects that these shootings have. A lot of times when you look at the narratives and how they type it, another child shot at a rec center. How about the two words that's in there that nobody ever questions? That rec center. Is that rec center has properly staffed? Is that rec center conflict resolution programs? Does that rec center has the underlying factors that prevent poverty that causes these things? Because the information that Jessica, Temple, Drexel, and all of them has put out there are underlying factors that not only the city, the media, and government has known for years. You know, majority of the times, just like with focus deterrence and the gun violence intervention programs, young men and women who are most likely to shoot or be shot. January 1st, they knew that 500 murders was going to happen. Why wasn't the focus on the rec centers getting in implementing programs that prevent violence in high crime neighborhoods? Why don't the media say there is another child shot at the rec center? This rec center needs to lose their funding because nothing affects the government from doing it. But yet they will scream, yes, we have the number one after school program here but 10 people got shot in your surrounding neighborhood. So how is that affected? Yes, we open up all these pools, but you know these people in this neighborhood don't eat. So of course they're gonna fight. Of course they're gonna do all this. It's gonna be a shooting at this wreck because a lot of these people don't have the means to get out of the poverty and the issues that they're in. So just is, is on to what we would say is big picture of understanding why these shootings are happening. Why a 13 year old is being shot in the car with her father why a three-year-old is sitting on a porch and gets murdered while getting her hair braided. These are the things that we live with every day. And I think part of solutions-based reporting and issue-based reporting is making sure that we are not taking uh, what elected leaders and others say at face value in terms of what solutions. And when, when a solution is presented that isn't going to have an effect for five or 10 years, or isn't even designed to have any immediate impact, we have to ask what the value is in that. I do hear often, you know, just sound bites of people saying, well, we're making this investment. One thing we need to do to fully contextualize that reporting is say, like, what does that investment actually mean? What is the time span? What is gonna to happen to the people in that neighborhood now before that ends up having any effect? And the trouble is, there are no great answers to the questions of what to do now to stop the suffering that's going on. And that's the answer that we hear that people want. And, and it's, it, the struggle is that we, we don't have a good answer to that question. You know, I mean, I firmly believe in the work that I'm doing, that the media can be part of the solution, right? Like that's sort of what we're talking about. So continuing to use law enforcement sources to tell a law enforcement narrative through kind of like these episodic reports, um, is damaging, right? So 
like telling, like really digging deep into some of the stories about victims. And then one of the other things that, that I haven't really mentioned, but that we've been thinking a lot about and, you know, sort of we hope to see is, is really a public health framing of the problem, right? So in public health, we think about the health of populations. And for me, certainly gun violence is a health problem, right? So like, that's why it's so clear to me that the law enforcement narrative doesn't at all represent what my story of gun violence is, right? My story of gun violence is a patient that I develop a very strong, sometimes years long relationships with that I take care of, that I do many operations for, that I help through. I just had a patient the other day coming into the hospital suffering horrible uh, mental health challenges from a, a very remote gunshot injury, right? Like those are the stories of gun violence according to, to me and my experience as a trauma surgeon those are certainly not at all represented in, in sort of what I see most reporting on gun violence is and the reporting that patients are consuming and their families and the general public, right? So if the media starts telling the stories of gun violence in a more thematic way, right? Like actually getting into root causes, getting into solutions, like you said, holding policymakers accountable, discussing policies that work, right? We know that policies that the general population supports prevent gun violence. And I'm talking specifically about gun legislation and, and other things that we've advocated for in Harrisburg, right? Like there's a lot of ways to report on gun violence that aren't just the episode. And when you talk about solutions and political solutions, those can make people hopeful. You know, we've had patients that we've talked to in our research that have literally connected the dots between the episodic report population fear, gun purchasing, and more gun violence. So I guess I would just challenge you, Alex, that like solutions aren't just about like what is the mayor doing or right. where is the money, but like we can be part of the solution too. I, I think that's totally right. And I think we do need to dig deeper on where the the potential solutions are coming from. And we also have to look at what um, there was this, um, I remember very distinctly one episode where, uh, you know, the mayor was asked about it and said, oh, it's happening everywhere. It's because of the pandemic. He said, well, actually, no, there are places that have done a, there are places that where gun violence has not risen to the degree it has here during the pandemic. And there are places that over the past 10, 15, 20 years have done a much better job at getting a handle on it. So maybe we should look at the solutions that are happening there. Maybe we should look at what other what other cities are doing and where they've had success and, you know, cities with higher tax bases and more investment and had the opportunity to do things that we haven't been able to do here. What are those things? What's needed? Who needs to do them? Who on the ground is, you know, advocating for these things? I think all of that is what we should be covering. Thank you so much. I want to take us on a little bit of a, a different route now. Um, many outlets also have these positive news segments, um, you know, dedicated to telling good stories. Shameless plug, I have Philly Rising, which I do every week. It airs on Fridays and Sundays. <laughs> NBC has Philly Live. Uh, I think the Enquirer has the upside. This question is for everyone. Do you consume and share these positive news stories as much as the crime stories are shared? So, so for me as an organization, that's I don't post any of the shootings on my page. I want to try to post the positive images. Even in our um, neighborhood, I'm not a supporter of the teddy bears or the balloons on the, the poles because that's traumatized. That's a, a sense of, of loss. And I, I always like to instill in our community a better tomorrow, even if you're having a frustrating day to day, what could change? But it goes to the majority. The truth is in a minority. 
And you don't see a lot of those. You don't see a lot of those stories and outlets that are magnifying the, the good news, uh, so to say. And so, now, you know, there's people in, in the media who have a passion for doing this, but there, there's the will that negativity rises. You can look at that and the news cycle has been down since our previous president. Why is that? It was something that people wanted to see. And it's sad to say that people like to see balance. And, and the fact is, there are business realities that we have to fight against as journalists to make sure that we are telling the right stories. And it, it has to be intentional. It is not as easy. You know, we hear on the, the police scanner that there's a shooting that happens. That's easy to find out that that's happening. It is not so easy to tell the stories that Antoinette is seeking out every week to find and tell and find the people who are doing things that aren't otherwise getting highlighted. That takes work. It takes dedication. It takes investment. And, you know, it, it's easy to see why not every media outlet jumps to doing that all the time. It's easy to say, okay, because we're doing this, because we're telling a story every week that's good, that, you know, we're doing everything we should be, which is not true. We have to always be thinking about you know, how do we contextualize? How do we frame these things? How do we make sure that we are doing our job and telling stories that need to be told around the region from every community and from every perspective? I think it, it's really important, uh, but we, you know, absolutely need to think of additional ways to do it. One of the things that I find really interesting about this discussion, and, and we've heard this from journalists, is this question around like, what does your audience want, right? Like, how do you measure that? you know, who is your audience, right? Is your audience the communities that are actually affected by gun violence? Or are they someone else, you know? Um, and then what do they actually want to hear, right? Like, and are you asking them? Are you polling them? Like, how do you collect that information? Because a lot of times we hear, oh, well, you know, if this news station reports it, we need to report it. Or because uh, there's like this kind of competition or this is what the audience wants. But I'm just, I'm so interested in, how you determine who your audience is and how you actually determine what they want. And when I've asked those questions, I don't get a lot of answers, you know, but I'll tell you that people who've been shot don't like the way that they're currently being reported about, and they don't like the negativity that they're hearing. And I totally agree that positive stories are really important. Um, that doesn't mean that they need to be told without like a critical lens or without accountability. I would challenge you to like put some meat behind the discussion around what the audience wants. There is a problem in how we, you know, figure out what the right balance of coverage is. And we don't say, we don't ask the audience directly what they want, but we can see who the audience is. And we know, and one thing that drew me to this position three years ago was the fact that our audience at KYW News Radio represents the metro area in terms of uh, ethnic background, diversity, and geography better than any other radio station uh, and most, you know, news radio stations around. And that's for a reason. It's because we, you know, engage, we, we do a good job, I think, of covering stories from all neighborhoods and all, you know, parts of the area. Again, not to say we're doing everything perfectly, but I think our job is to tell stories that aren't being told. It's, it's hard to ask them what they want because our job is to bring things to them and make them care about things that they might not otherwise care about. Maybe then you actually need to figure out what type of reporting will make them care about the right. issues that, that you get, I guess you think. That's right. Important, right. That's key. Mm -hmm. 
All of that being said, thank you for leading me to the conclusion of this conversation. I hope that this conversation has made people feel that they have a say-so, you know, and how we're reporting and what we're reporting. Um, they can reach out to us on social media. Reporters are on social media. Pitch us a story. If you have good news, I'm always looking for good news. Reach out to me. Alex is program director. How can the community give our station feedback that you and other leadership will be receptive to? What are the best methods for reaching out? Reach out to me directly, alex at kwbnewsradio.com. That'll get to me and I will respond to you. Thank you, Jessica and Tariq. I want to give you a last chance to dance as well. Any final thoughts? Oh, I, I really appreciate you having this conversation. I think that this is like a really important step forward. Um, I think that collaboration is so important um, when it comes to gun violence, right? Like we're all in this together from, you know, me at the hospital, Tyreek out in the community, Alex and Antoinette at the radio station and in media, like literally we all have to work together. And But we all have to, number one, make sure we're not causing trauma, right? And listen to the people that we're reporting about. And then also kind of look towards those solutions and hold folks accountable. Looking in the mirror and not pointing the finger, a lot of a lot of things um, we try to cast the blame on, but if we look inside of ourselves, we can, we could do a lot of, a lot of change. Um, I think just for doing the data because a lot of stuff that we speak on, it really has no meat behind it. And, you know, I, I appreciate people supporting our organization, our community in a way that it's not about the balance, it's about uh, tomorrow. So, you know, I thank KYW, I thank y'all for just bringing this out because again, you know, the truth is that I'm a minority and a lot of people don't hear this point of view. And I just thank you. We're gonna to continue to do what we have to do as far as the intensive uh, work and prevention. And anything that we can do as an organization, not just in South Florida, we're willing to help out. And thank you to both of you because just because we have done something a certain way does not mean it's the right way and doesn't mean that it's the way that it must be done forever. And so I appreciate these conversations and I appreciate the thoughts and, and would love to you know engage with you and others going forward. Tariq, Alex, and Jessica, thank you so much for joining us on Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Antoinette Lee. Our newsmaker of the week is Ernest Owens, a nationally recognized and award-winning journalist. KYW Sheridan Howard spoke with him about his advocacy work and strides in Brayson Media. Making news and then finding himself in the news, Ernest Owens, a local journalist and advocate, is impacting newsrooms, fighting for fellow journalists, and affecting change throughout the industry. Ernest, welcome. So at this point in your career, Ernest, if you could just get paid counting your titles, I think you'd be a rich man. Absolutely. So I guess first and foremost, my main title is CEO of Ernest Media Empire LLC. I'm the editor-at-large of Philadelphia Magazine, the president of the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists, and the chairman of the board of Philadelphia Community Access Media, also known as Philly Camp. And I guess really I should start off by saying congratulations for being honored by the Philadelphia Tribune as one of Philadelphia's most influential African Americans under 40. And you're not even 30 yet. No, I turned 30 in two weeks and then I'm getting married four days after. So yeah. it's been an interesting season, exciting season. So let's just jump right in. So it's no new thing that the relationship between Philadelphia's black and brown communities and the media is strained, right? What's your perspective on why and how it can be improved? I think we should just start at the math and the science of it all. Mathematically, there is a disproportionate number of black and brown journalists in the newsroom. There is predominantly white newsrooms across Philadelphia. In a city, 
that's majority black and brown. So when we look at the, you know, geography of the situation, the newsrooms do not reflect the city at large. And regardless of how much, you know, people intend to tell the story right, to tell the story accurate, to tell the story with nuance, there is going to be hiccups by default because there is a cultural disconnect and difference. So when you're in a situation where you see a racial disparity in representation aligned with a city that is very diverse, something's bound to fall in the cracks. And historically, we have seen that over and over again. And that's because the problem has not been resolved. We do not see enough diverse producers, editors, entry-level positions and opportunities, management and promotion opportunities for Black and Brown journalists. And so the public is seeing this because they're the consumers. And they're being sold newspapers with bylines written by mostly white journalists. They're being told to listen to radio with voices that don't sound like people that come from where they come from. And so there is naturally a distrust already there before any major offenses occur. And then when they do, the situation escalates. And I think that's how we are right now currently in Philadelphia. So you've been at the forefront of journalism, but also advocacy. Can we talk about intersectionality? Because you have been breaking stories, not only in the black and brown communities, but also the LGBTQ communities. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan of Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, and she is this Black academic who 30 years ago coined the term intersectionality, which addresses the various identities between Black people, gender, sexual orientation, and beyond. And so she, in her research, recognized that individuals, marginalized people, carry various levels of marginalization beyond just race alone. So she studied Black women and how a Black woman's experience in this country is very different from that of a straight Black man. And as a Black queer person, it was very important for me to not treat myself as two different category boxes that I'm going here, here, and here. One of the big positions I had starting in my career was to be the LGBTQ editor of Philadelphia Magazine. And it was very important to me when I got that position to be very clear that I am openly Black, but I'm also openly LGBTQ. I'm openly queer and I'm openly Black. And so both of these things were going to be incorporated in my coverage because one, Philadelphia is a majority Black and Brown city. And we have a very robust and very visible LGBTQ scene. So it would have been inaccurate not to recognize the role that race and queerness intersects in this city with its events, its social life and everything. And that inspired the you know groundbreaking work I did on exposing acts of racism in the neighborhood because I recognized that this was an issue that wasn't just about LGBTQ issues, but how race complicated things in that situation. And, and I've been doing that throughout my career. Whether I'm covering politics, social justice issues, I am always looking at the nuance and the difference that each source plays in telling their story. You know, to simply just say, oh, these are Black and white people, you're missing something. It's deeper. It's Black women. It's Muslim queer people, people who are living with HIV and AIDS. It's people who, these are all important details that helps us shape the story. And sometimes I feel like others in the industry, in their pursuit to try to diversify content 
they skip over those important details. So I always lead with intersectionality. And you haven't kept it local. It's been all over the country. You've been throwing down and blowing up stuff in mainstream media regarding race and media, identity, LGBTQ issues, also been changing what the newsroom looks like. One of the things that's been very important for me also in my career is that I have had great mentors in this business from Sarah Glover to Janice Armstrong to Denise Clay. And all three of those women have served as previous past presidents of the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists. And what I learned from them and from others who have served in these roles, and even people that I look up to like Asa Moore and Reggie Bryant, other leaders, is that they did both. They advocated for change in the newsroom while also advancing the coverage. And that was something that was a seed in me very early in my career, that if I didn't like the newsrooms I was working in and working with, that would impact how I would feel about covering my community. And so I really wanted to make these newsrooms in this industry a safe space, a better place for other Black journalists, because if we're not feeling good about the work we're putting out, it is going to impact the city at large. It's going to impact coverage. And so when I first started off, I saw a revolving door of a lot of Black journalists leaving to go to PR, leaving to go to communications. They weren't staying in the industry, and it was important to me to figure out why. So let's talk about PABJ, the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists, and the important role it plays not only in your life, but also Philadelphia as a whole. So I joined PABJ very early in my career. You know, I did committee chairships. I served as the vice president of print. And now as president, I'm the second youngest president in the organization's history, the first openly gay president in the organization's history. And we've been around for nearly 50 years. It was important to me that not only people knew me for the awards I received and the coverage I was doing as a person, but what I was doing to help mobilize Black journalists in this city and being empowered and, and pushing back. So what do Black journalists and journalists in general need to do to bridge that gap, to forge some real trust and a connection with the community? Absolutely. I think one of the most important things is that we should not be working in silos. I think the bulk of my success in Philadelphia and nationally has been consistently working with Black journalists, other Black journalists from various disciplines because everyone's changing jobs. I've seen people go from print to radio, from TV to print. People are moving around in this industry. And it's so important that we all know who we are, what we do, and build a relationship before crisis strikes. I think more Black journalists should just build a tribe, find a tribe early. I'm all about fixing recruitment, community relations, and policy. So in other words, if we bring a lot of Black and Brown journalists to a certain newsroom, let's talk about retention. It's The vibe is not right. The policies are not right people will leave. So I'm about, but while that's happening, we're also invested in having conversations about what's going on in those newsrooms to create safe spaces and better environments for those workers. But outside of that, we have entrepreneurial journalists. I have contracts. I do my own independent content. I work for myself. So I've been thinking a lot lately that the conversation can't just be about people working at mainstream newsrooms. We also got brothers and sisters out here who want to do their own thing, want to create their own content, be independent, like myself. We're having conversations about how to further the pipeline for entrepreneurial journalists. Whether you're in print, digital, or broadcast, a lot of these problems are the same. Ernest, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was awesome. If you're considering home care for yourself or a loved one, Patriot Home Care makes it easy with a caring and compassionate staff. Don't be overwhelmed by all the choices. Let Patriot Home Care help. Patriot Home Care is growing with offices throughout Philadelphia and now in Delaware. 
Patriot is accepting caregivers and new clients virtually as well. At Patriot, you will love what you do and feel rewarded by taking care of people who need your help. Patriot also offers some of the area's best pay, benefits, and a $600 sign-on bonus to new caregivers. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week is presented by Patriot Home Care. Welcome back. I'm Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. Now, there's a new fine art gallery in town, and it's one of a kind. It's located on Germantown Avenue, not far from Uncle Bobby's Coffee Shop. And what makes this place special is the curator and creator behind it. He's actually a Germantown native himself. You really have to visit this place to grasp its greatness and to grasp the feel that the owner intended. It is free and open to the public. Stephen C.W. Taylor is the creator and curator of Ubuntu, and he is our changemaker of the week. Ubuntu is an African philosophy word. It means humanity unto others. At 5423 Germantown Avenue, it's also an experience. I wanted when people walked into the gallery to feel something. Peace, euphoria, zen. Stephen C.W. Taylor opened the Fine Art Photography Gallery in September. Ubuntu is the first of its kind. It's in the hood, so I wanted it to be a place of relative healing. When people walk through the doors, I wanted them to have the ability to transport themselves through these portals to somewhere else and leave whatever it is on the other side of the door. The walls are filled with extra-large steel prints of Taylor's travels all over the world. Bali, Indonesia, Nairobi, Kenya, Montana, Barbados, Brazil, Abu Dhabi. The 39-year-old has been to 18 different countries, taking pictures and gathering these experiences. Those young men are jumping into the Indian Ocean. I was in Lamu last year, one of my favorite places in the world. Uh, It's about four cars on the island, uh, so everything is done by donkey. And there's an intimacy there that I haven't found anywhere else in the world. But he wanted to bring his talents home. This is my community, this is my neighborhood, and I wanted to put my gallery where I'm from as opposed to somewhere else that my community may not have the access to experience it. It's not just an art gallery that sells limited edition pieces of work. It's a museum. It's, a, it's, a, it's how we can connect through conversation. As always, you can find this full story on our website, kywnewsradio.com. If you know someone making a difference in your community, please let me know. I would love to highlight them as our next Philly Rising Changemaker. You can tweet me at ARLE on air. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. That's it for this week's Flashpoint. To hear more on our panel discussion, you can catch the Flashpoint podcast on our Odyssey app, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. All you have to do is search for Flashpoint. And don't forget to subscribe. I'll end us with this quote by Simon Sinek. Never give up on trying to build the world you can see, even if others can't see it. This show was produced by Ari and Fulcher, Sherrod A. Howard, and me, your host, Antoinette Lee. Until next time, remember to keep going. Thank you for listening. Flashpoint is a production of KYW News Radio 1039 FM. For more, go to KYWnewsradio.com slash Flashpoint and subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast wherever you get your shows. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives.